So, again, we're, we're combating all sorts of fun technical issues, but hopefully it'll be okay. Again, we're looking at this one last time. One last time, we're looking at this pre-Age of Enlightenment thing. This, that little 48 years sticking there between uh, the Reformation and the Enlightenment. So we're going to look at the last little bits of the wars of religion that have been ravaging Europe. All right. So we've got different philosophies changing throughout Europe. So can you help me name the great philosophers? Look at these pictures and see if you can name what philosopher this is. All right. This is Plato, right? Yeah. You got to stretch yourself a little bit. Plato. All right. Yeah, Hippocrates. <laughs> Hippocrates, right? This one's this one's a little easier. This one's easier. Socrates. Socrates. Because these are soccer tees. Yeah, Socrates. Good job. Kierkegaard. I didn't say these are these are brilliant. They're just fun. <laughs> Descartes. 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 Yeah, there you go. Because today we're going to talk about Descartes. Descartes in 1633. We got to get into it somehow. Descartes. Descartes, because it's a Chinese sign. Anyway, 1637. Descartes writes, "Je pense dans les Suisses." We'll get to that in a second. Descartes, who should be looking very familiar to you, because you keep seeing him over there, right? This has been Descartes the whole time. So Descartes is this French mathematician and philosopher and meteorologist and all sorts of things, because nobody was just one thing back then. If, if you're going to be smart at all, you're going to be a polymath. You're going to be into a gazillion different things. Because it's only relatively recently that we've specialized that sort of thing. I'm only a mathematician. No, back then, if you were, if you were, if you went to university, if you got a universal knowledge, you're going to be good at a lot of different things. So he was good at a lot of different things. But what he really wanted to be was a soldier, because he's, he's every young boy's dream. I don't want to be a mathematician. I want to be a soldier. So he, he, he enters into the company of Moritz of Nassau. Remember him, Prince of Orange. We had a whole discussion of Orange. You're wearing orange, orange. Yep, Pr Prince of Orange. And he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm from now on, I'm gonna be Dutch. I'm gonna be out there. I'm gonna be, uh, be military with them. Well, everybody wants to be Dutch. Everybody wants to be Dutch. <laughs> Dutch is the new orange. Anyway, uh, 1619, he had this vision, this ecstatic vision of mathematics and philosophy, because it's the time in history when, when you do that. I mean, this remember Tycho Brahe had a had a had a duel about math. Because you get into it. All of us think, oh, math, I hate third hour. You know, we don't like math. Back then, they, they had duels about math. They had visions about math. So he had this, this ecstatic vision where he got these mathematical proofs in his head, and he had a sense of, of how God wanted to, him to express philosophy to people. And so he left the military, and he started studying math in the Netherlands. And he's like, I'm going to be a mathematician. I'm going to put this all together. This will be very, very cool. Um, being that this is in the, the Reformation era, uh, he has a sexual dalliance with a servant girl named Helena because 
that whole concept of marriage, it's a very fluid thing at this time in history. Uh, people would get into marriage contracts for a couple of years just to see how it worked out. There's a lot of common law marriages. There's Even amongst very religious people, you just basically slept around because it's religious. Why not? Only just just about like that the most ardent Cap uh, the most ardent Calvinists and the Anabaptists are about the only people going, Hey, do you know the Bible says we probably shouldn't do that? There's only I mean those are about the only people that are saying that's not cool. Everybody else is just sleeping around doing whatever they feel like doing. Um, read Shakespeare and, and most of the husband and wife things going on in Shakespeare, they're not actually married. I mean, if you look at them, it's like, oh, they're just kind of shacking up with each other. Because that was normal then. Anyway. So he, he fools around with the servant girl, and he gets a daughter named Francine. And it was this period of life that he wrote something called The Discourse on the Method of Rightly conclude, uh, Conducting One's Reason and of Seeking the Truth in the Sciences. Because again, apparently you're paid by the word of your title. Titles <laughs> <laughs> at this time are very, very long. Everybody nowadays just refers to it as Discourse on the Method. But if you, if you look at that just grammatically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You have Discourse on the Method... Of what? You know, this. This is the actual full title. Discourse on the method of how to think. How are you actually going about thinking? Now, it was a really funky philosophical work on a number of different levels. Not the least of which is that it was written in French. Everybody else is writing their philosophies, and their mathematics, and all that kind of stuff in Latin. He wrote his in French. Why? Why do you think? If everybody else is doing it in Latin, other than just to be smart, you know, what else do you think? What, you got a big, I'm, just, I'm just thinking. He didn't do Latin. He, no, he, he knew Latin, because he, he, he wrote most of his, his later stuff in Latin. If he wanted to read some French. There you go. He specifically wanted the lay person to be able to read it and understand it, which is very new. All philosophy up to this point has been written for theologians, written for other philosophers, written for other... Um, other... other scholars, what have you. He's kind of the, Descartes is kind of the uh, the Jerome of the philosophical world. Remember how Jerome's like, why don't we actually translate the Bible into everyday talk so that everybody can actually read it? Same thing with Descartes. He's like, why don't I, I want to write something so that everybody can read it. Now, A, you should look at that and go, oh, that's kind of nice. What are some of the ramifications of that? To saying that philosophy shouldn't just be for the philosophers. The whole point of, of the discipline of philosophy is to clarify how people think, and everybody needs to do that. What's, what do you think are the ripple effects of looking at it like that? It elevates everyone. It's the idea of each person having dignity and having value. Absolutely. There are no people that you say, well, these people are smart, these people are losers, who cares what they think. What else? Just from an historical standpoint, what, what comes off of this? Gives the ability to change a large group rather than just the thinkers. Exactly. So, what kinds of things? What kind of things can you think of are presented philosophically to a large group, to the masses, as opposed to just to philosophers? The Bible, sure, and a good again, good Anabaptists, and then later on the uh, uh, the Puritans in England. Well, English Puritans getting their Bibles printed over in Holland, you know, stuff like that. Yep. These people are trying to get to to uh, to the masses. Well, in some ways, just the whole laws of the land are done by those leaders, and mm -hmm. then if there's a groundswell, the people might demand common law and. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, 
you can make an argument that Descartes is the grandfather of things like Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, things like that where you go, hey, instead of us just sitting in a parlor and discussing philosophy and Latin, why don't I go tell you guys that you ought to rethink how you're doing government? Why don't I just tell everybody to rethink some of this? You have um, uh, people during the French Revolution distributing pamphlets, philosophically <coughs> arguing why you should undo the monarchy and, and things. To the people. Let's argue this. This is what C.S. Lewis did when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and aimed it toward children. Or, um, you ever, anybody ever read Mere Christianity? Love that book. Love Mere Christianity. It was originally just radio lectures over the BBC for everybody. Mass consumption. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if one of the radio stations in in uh, in Peoria, one of the top forty radio stations, just said, "We're going to start airing like Mere Christianity lectures." If even like um, one of the Christian radio stations, because it wasn't even a Christian radio station, it was the BBC. But if even one of the Christian radio stations started airing philosophical chapters from Mere Christianity, most people would shut it off. They'd sit there, even though it's brilliant, they'd go, but it makes my brain hurt. Can't you just play some music or, or a, a preacher on a Sunday morning? But philosophy for the masses? Yes. That's who it should be for. So all that comes back to Descartes, who's writing this for the masses, specifically to reach uh, in, uh, the normal guy in the street. In fact, he specifically said he wrote it so that women could understand it. Now, there's a couple different ways to take it. No, 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 don't go there, don't go there. Okay. Uh, there's a couple different ways to take that. See, you went to a bad place. Okay. <laughs> There's different ways of taking that, and yes, there are people over the years that have said, even women, oh my goodness, you had to really dumb it down, where are the illustrations, you know, that kind of stuff. I would tend to argue, like with a lot of other people, this is right after he starts having a living girlfriend and a daughter. So you could take it that he's sitting there going, even you dopey women will understand this. I tend to look at it and say, he's going, I want, I want Helena, and I want Francine to be able to understand this. Because this is only like two years after after his daughter is born. So, take it how you want to do it. I, I tend to want to give him a little bit of credit here. You want to think that he's being a snark, you can do that. Anyway. So, this is why it's called the Age of Enlightenment. He starts the sound of the masses. Arguably so. You, you could say that he, he is kind of opening the door for everybody to go, huh, let me start thinking. Because it's after this that you start getting things like, um, Hobbes and Locke and all these other philosophers that people, not just not just theologians and philosophers, but people are reading. And so it does, you can make an argument that this opens the door for the Enlightenment all the way around. Okay, secondly, the discourse argues you can make no assumptions whatsoever. You cannot assume anything. Up to this point, everybody's been building things on other Greek thinkers or on Christian thinkers like Augustine or Aquinas. You take what has come before, you build off of logical structures, and he's like, nope, chuck all of that. Chuck everything that you think you know. You can't trust anything. I don't want to even address Socrates. I don't even want to address Aquinas. None of that matters. He looked at a candle, and he said, I, I, looking at the wax metal, I can't trust my own senses. Not really. Because when I look at it, I know in my head, I know that this hard, opaque stuff over here, oh, this doesn't even show up by that. 
this hard, opaque stuff that is waxy to the touch. I know that that's wax. But this runny, clear stuff over here, that's also wax. I, I know that. But if I were just to, to trust my senses, if you showed me this thick stuff, opaque stuff, and then later came up with this runny liquid stuff, I, I would probably think they're two different things, right? They, they don't look the same. They don't act the same. I can't trust what my senses would be telling me. Would he do the same thing with water and ice? Sure. But he was looking at it, he was looking at a candle. Well, yes, that would probably make the same argument. That one is hard and, and opaque. The other one is, is clear and runny. So he's like, I can't trust my senses. I cannot trust it. You can't trust anything to be what you perceive it to be merely through your senses. How do you know that anything even exists at all? How do you know that that, that that stool exists? How do you know the person next to you exists? How do you know? Anybody who's seen The Matrix goes, I was gonna say, yeah. Very Cartesian, The Matrix. Yeah. So how do you know this? How, couldn't everything that we think we see just be the creation of some sort of malicious god out there who's trying to deceive us? Couldn't it be? How do you know it isn't? How, what do you know? Well, you know you think you know from your senses, but how do you know? Uh, how do you know that God isn't trying to deceive you? Maybe not out of malice, but maybe because he's trying to uh, accomplish something in you, so he's, he's making all these illusions around you. How do you even know there is a God? How do you know any of this? How do you even know you exist? I think. Well, that's what he says. He says, Je pense, donc je suis. I'm thinking. I'm the one doubting. I'm the one thinking. I, I, at least I must exist. How do I know? I, how do I know anything? How do I know I exist? Well, because I'm wondering if I exist, and if I'm wondering if I exist, I probably do. I can't even say the I'm wondering if I exist without using first-person personal pronoun. I must be me on some levels. So at least I can do that. The mere act of doubting suggests logically that at least the doubter exists. So you can start with that. I think, therefore, I am. I'm thinking, therefore, I must be existing. And then he philosophically rebuilds everything off of that. He's like, well, if I exist, logically, what else exists? What has to exist for me to continue to exist? And he starts rebuilding philosophical principles off of that, talking about uh, that there must be a God who creates the known world, because how else can the world exist? Blah, 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 blah. So you, you build it all based on logic. Yes? I accept that that's a very self-centered point. Absolutely. Which point? I mean, like, it's, it's like, so everything exists for me? I mean, is that in the oh. end where the logic goes? Or, like, well, God obviously has to exist because I exist, and, and if I didn't exist, this all couldn't exist because it all exists for me to live. That's well, it. Like, you know? I hear you. I, I'll give you self-centered. I'm not sure about self-ish, per se. Um, he's not necessarily saying every, the world exists for the purpose of maintaining me. God exists for the purpose of creating me, but rather saying, if I exist, then other things that have to have created me have to have existed. Um, so it, it's self-centered. I am the, I am at the center of my argument, and everything that is built around what I understand about me. But I'm not necessarily saying all that exists for my benefit, per se. But yes, it's very much I'm, because I'm, I'm the only thing that I know, really, really, really. Everything else I have to try to figure out. Now, there are some flaws with this, not the least of which is that it does create something like self-centrism. 
Anybody else have any ideas of flaws with this? Well, another flaw that you wouldn't know unless you, you read uh, uh, the discourse is one of the things he's thrown out on the way down as he's ripping apart everything and getting down to it is propositional logic. He's like, that's all a creation of humanity. I can't, I can't trust that. And then he uses propositional logic to rebuild all the rest of the stuff. And you go, you're cheating. You already threw that one out. OK, what else? Anything else? Well, I think some religious standards are, is everything's changing there. There's going to be doubts there, and you're going to look at things completely different. Right. That's a good point. Um, let me get back to that. Let me get back to that. Oh, that's exactly right. Judy's hit on something that's extremely important. Well, there's also, okay, how do you know? No, no, no. How do you know in your head that the wax is wax, whether it's melted or not? Because he said, I, I can't trust my senses. I have to go with what I know about wax. How do you know that? How do Now, you, you might say, I'm having to use logic around my senses, but at some point, you have to use observation. You have to use your senses. You go, well, because I saw it melt, so I know it's the same stuff. You go, and you're still perceiving. Granted, you can't just walk into a room and see a pile of this and a pile of puddle of that and just immediately recognize from your senses that that's the same material in different states. But the only way that you do know that is by what you've watched happen. So you're still having to use your senses. So Descartes was like, oh, man, I got a vision of this. This is ironclad. This is great. You know, no, but it is compelling. It's got a, a lot of serious flaws, but you make a good, interesting <coughs> argument. Yes. What about distrust? What about distrust? Because if everything's built on me, from stems from me, then you can't trust what other people say because that stems from them. Absolutely. And you don't even know at the beginning if, there, if there's a them that exists. Okay, but you, yes, yes, but you're jumping ahead. Because oh, you may just be some sort of amorphous, um, non-corporeal intellect that the only way you can wrap yourself around what you are is to pretend that you came from somewhere, pretend that you had a beginning, pretend that you've got flesh. And that means that you pretend that you have a mom and a dad, and you pretend you have friends to talk to, because otherwise you just be going crazy. Now, he says... But since that doesn't make sense, let's go back to what it makes sense based on what? On propositional logic, on your observations, those are things you've already thrown out. I don't want to rip on Descartes, I'm just saying there are some flaws to this, but it's a, it's a really important philosophical principle. Yeah. Was, it, was it just because of the states of matter, shall we say, that he said you could not trust your senses? Well, that was just an example of how you cannot trust your senses. Did he have other examples? <laughs> I mean, why? Why, I, I guess I'm, I'm going back to the premise. Why, why is he so sure that you can't trust your senses? Well, he's saying you can't trust anything other than what you know. But I think all of us would say, you look at a, at a stick in water and you go, that stick is broken. No, no, it's, it's, actually, it's actually an optical illusion. How long, don't answer. How long are those, those, those dashed lines on the, in, the, in the highway? You know, you know what I'm talking about, the middle lane? Yeah, they're the, between the lanes. I, I'm not asking you. Yeah. How long are those? What? Three feet. Right? That's what they're supposed to be. Okay. And, and, and with the gap in between them, there's, there's usually about like twice as much in between as the length of the thing. So there's like six feet in between, three feet dash. Right? 
How long are we? And between them? 30. Really? Wow. That's amazing. Is that what you guys, as you're driving, you know they're 10 foot long and 30 feet in between them. So from the beginning of one dash to the beginning of another dash is 40 feet, right? And, and, the, and your driver ed instructor said things like, make sure that you have like a good 40, 50 feet between you and the car in front of you. And you go, oh, I've got plenty of, uh, of footage. Or, or I don't need, it's like, that's 40 feet. Does that, does that strike you as 40 feet? Do you realize how far you travel in a split second as you're driving down the highway? Is that what you understood that to be? Don't trust your senses. But then you're using your senses to figure out you are. that that's not. So, so, so that example. And the same thing with the stick in the water. And the same thing with the wax. You're so using that's, your senses. Exactly. So that is an argument of both things that we're saying here. That he's absolutely right. You can't just trust your senses. But you're having to use your senses to ascertain that you can't just trust your senses. So, so he might be simplifying things a bit. But he's got a good point. You can't just trust your senses. You can't, I'm going to emphasize the word just again. You can't just trust your senses. Just like you can't just trust your gut. Some things you go, my gut reaction to this question, you know, I could take a test, I always say, go with your first gut reaction. It's probably right because you've got muscle memory to your brain. You're, you're, it's probably what you're, yeah. So you go, oh, so you should trust your gut. You should trust your instincts. Go with your heart. You go, no, Bible's over and over going, do not trust your heart. Do not, do not trust your heart. You can't just but I don't want to stay on this too much longer here. Um, in a later work, in 1644, are you going to sit here? Okay. 1644, Descartes makes the same argument but wrote it in Latin. Anybody know what he said? How he said this in Latin? Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. This is what's it's kind of, not everybody knows Latin. That's fine. But I, this is kind of if anybody knows a Latin phrase, this is probably the Latin phrase you've heard at some point. Or not, maybe. Anyway, I'm uh, thinking of like e or something. Okay. <laughs> e Nista. So, this is fairly groundbreaking because it's, 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 it's the first major work to try to base philosophy, physics, etc., on intellect, solely on what we know, solely on what we understand intellectually rather than on <laughs> tradition, on theology, on what has come before, to, to say we're going to at least try to get back. Again, I think even sitting around the room, we go, I'm not sure you get what you aimed for, but to at least try to uh, to get back to that. And so, yes, it became kind of the prelude to uh, to what you're talking about with the Enlightenment. And it's also um, people have talked about how this kind of opened the door for you can very very new concepts like postmodernism, which is now we're getting back to what Judy was saying. The basic idea of postmodernism is that you can't know know anything. You can't absolutely know anything. So, what? Different people take that different ways. Do as you feel, or it's more important to feel real than it is to be true. Go with what feels right as opposed to what is true, because there's no way you can know truth. And so, Descartes has been seen as the father of that movement, as the first, not only quintessential doubter, but the first essential doubter. We have to doubt the essence of things. We can't know anything. Other people said, no, he's the greatest opponent. Because he's saying, well, the only thing you can know is what you know. Don't trust what you feel. The flip side of postmodernism. So which is it? Is he the guy that opened the door for postmodernism? Because you, you can't know anything about the world around you. Or is he the biggest opponent of it? Because you go, well, 
You can't trust how you feel. Go with what you know. Yes. Yes. And we talked about Kierkegaard later, because you saw his name earlier. Um, to talk about Kierkegaard later, you can make an argument that Kierkegaard is the is the is one of the fathers of the modern evangelical movement. This idea of saying, open up the Bible, have a relationship with the Lord, um, get past everything just being propositional. You have to have be relational about this. And the and the father of modern existentialists, going against be one with the universe, be connected, ignore logic. Both sides tend to look at him and go, that's our guy. Which makes Kierkegaard just spin in his grave. Anyway, all of this kind of torqued off his fellow mathematician polymath, Blaise Pascal. But, uh, because mathematicians are number people. Like they oh, yeah. Things out number, and to have somebody say, you can't trust your senses, or you can't do this, that would, have to, that would drive me crazy. Well, these, these, are, these are guys smarter than their own good sometimes. But, um, but no, they kind of have big debates about like meteorology and how do you figure out things like atmospheric pressure. Big, big public shouting matches about atmospheric pressure because again, Tycho Brahe, no nose. Anyway, uh, you remember that the bronze nose? Anyway, never mind. Pascal, child prodigy, writing complex theorem, mathematical papers in his teens. He's the Mozart of mathematicians. So much so that Descartes goes, "Oh, you didn't write that." <gasps> And so they, nice. from an early age, they're like, really don't like you. Oh. But we had to talk to the company. Why you think you're doing it? It was funny. Anyway. <laughs> so he's like, oh, you, you, your dad wrote that. Somebody else wrote that. You slapped your name on it. And then as he, as he went along, they're like, I don't know, he's really this smart. Apparently he's writing these things. They really didn't like each other very much. Pascal's also a devout Catholic. I mean, just very Bible-believing, rock-solid Christian Catholic. And he's appalled. He's like, you just flung God out. Philosophically, he's like, oh, okay, to get down, it all has to be about me, not about God. Um, and then you're trying to create this totally rationalistic philosophy. It doesn't work like that. He said, I cannot forgive Descartes. In all his philosophy, Descartes did his best to dispense with God. But Descartes could not avoid prodding God to set the world in motion with a snap of his lordly fingers. After that, he had no more use for God. And he's right. I mean, God is basically like, okay, this is another way that I exist. Because God did stuff. Literally like a deus ex machina. God comes in and fixes this part. And then we can build off of that. And Pascal's like, no, you can't do that. It's just, no, you can't do that. For that matter, he's like, I don't think you could be just rationalistic. You can't just do that. All of you guys, even without my prodding, are like, you can't just do that. It's like, the heart has reasons that reason cannot know. Now, you have to be careful with this because he's not saying, follow your heart. What he's saying is, it's like, wait, pure reason can't answer all the big questions, the really good, juicy questions in life. You can't just reason it out. He's not saying, oh, the heart wants what the heart wants. Not Pascal. Do not hear Pascal saying that. He's a mathematician. He's a logician. What he's saying is, is no, you can't just use reason. You have to use reason and your senses. You have to use reason and your emotions. You have to use reason and theology. You have to use reason and etc. In fact, Pascal said, let's talk about logic. Logic isn't always about everything that you know. Sometimes it's about probabilities. And I teach this in my logic class every summer. It's like the logical thing sometimes, if you know stuff, use what you know. If you don't, what can you infer? What can you infer from probabilities? Has anybody ever heard of Pascal's wager? Yeah. 
at least that phrase before. Okay? He says, all right, you cannot prove or disprove God purely by reason alone. If you could, if we have enough good philosophers, everybody would be a Christian, right? Or everybody would be an atheist. You're never going to just prove God to an atheist. No atheist is going to come and do, do a good enough argument and you just go, well, that's it. I, before talking to you, I was a devout Christian. Now I'm an atheist. Logic is not going to prove God or disprove God in and of itself. So you need to make a choice based on probability. For instance, if we gamble and believe in God, if you say, I don't know that there's a God or not, but I think that there is. There probably is, based on what I do know. What happens? If we're right, you gain everything, right? If you're right and there is a God, you get eternal life with the Lord. Booyah. And if you're wrong, you lose nothing. If I'm wrong and there is no God, then when I die, I cease to exist. And if I didn't believe in God, when I die, I cease to exist. I live with a false hope, but that's about the worst you can say. Paul argues against that in something in Second Corinthians. How so? Um, or is it first? He says we're, you know, if this isn't true, then we're the worst off. Yeah, we're the, to be because, pitied above all men. Um, because they're enduring all of these things for the sake of Christ and enduring a terrible life experience in many ways from the sufferings they experience. At a time when most people in, 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 in Europe are involved in some church somewhere, it's not quite like that. It's more like you're going to be in trouble depending on which church you, you, you're part of. But you're right. It, it, Paul, Paul specifically is like, well, if all we do is have faith for this life, we're to be pitied above all other things. Obviously, we're living a lot. From Pascal's standpoint, where he's like, nobody's going to pick on you for being a Christian in Europe. They might pick on you for being Catholic or for being Protestant or for being the wrong kind of Protestant or whatever. But believing in God is not going to substantially make your life harder in Europe at the time. But that's an important caveat to me. It's like, if we gamble and we don't believe in God, if we say, there may or may not be, but I don't believe it, if we're right, we gain nothing. If we're right, and there is no God, and we live like there's no God, then maybe we get superficial, lusty fun here, but that's about it. If we're wrong, we lose everything. If you're wrong, if you're right and there's a God, then you go to heaven. If you're wrong in which you believe and there is a God, you go to hell. He's like, think about this. It uses rationality, but it also uses probability to go, oh, what you don't know is worth gambling on. What you don't know is going to, to be fundamentally, crucially important because you absolutely must pick one. This isn't something where you go, okay, I'll enter into that. You, go, you already are. Everybody has to pick one or the other. You must pick. Which one are you going to pick? The stakes are infinite and eternal. So, to Pascal, he says, what's the logical choice, given this? Now, I'm going to go back to what Michael was saying. Um, arguably, you can look at various points of this and say, well, even Paul argues against the simplicity of this. And I've seen people kind of come to know the Lord-ish based on, on something like this, where they're like, well, might as well. Those are hurt. That's what we'll nowadays refer to as like fire insurance. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and that's not a good way to, to develop a, a lordship mentality, right? Yeah. He's yeah. like, well, sure, why not? I'll, I'll, I'll do some Hail Marys and uh, go to church on Sunday and uh, cross myself. That is not Christianity. That is not what you're supposed to do. 
the idea is that you own this, that you have a relationship. So this isn't him saying, this is the best way to convert people to Christianity. And, and, and when he expressed it, he wasn't even trying to say, this is the best way to, what is he trying to do with this? If he's not saying, this is the best evangelistic tool, this will make people good Christians. That's his big thing, is he's like, all right, Christians aren't just stupid people. They haven't thought about this. Logically, logically, this just makes sense. Stop and think. You have to make a choice. You have no choice but to make a choice. Logically, this is what makes sense. He's getting people to stop and think about how this makes sense. Not that this is what you absolutely have to do and this is going to change your life, but to make people go, oh, God, think about this. The same thing work for a Muslim. How so? In that they say, hey, if we're right, we're going to gain everything. If we're wrong, we lose nothing. But it's not losing, you know, there's there's other religions. Yeah, they, they could use Pascal's wager to. to right. Yeah. Um, and I suppose you could even use an amended form of this for something like. Like Buddhism, where you say, um, if you if you try to relieve yourself of, of all, all the stuff that, um, that, that all the bad karma that messes you up, uh, then you don't lose anything by trying to do it. Right. But then you can and you can lose. You can really mess yourself up if you don't move this way. Right. But it this wager assumes there are no other religions that could be broken. Although no. if I open up and say, well, we have these two choices, right. now you have to make a decision between these two. Well, and, and, and he's not necessarily making an argument, and maybe this is what Rain's getting, he's not necessarily making an argument for biblical Christianity as much as he's making an argument for the idea of that there is a God eternity. and that it, 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 eternity matters. So okay. it could, I suppose, be applied toward Judaism or toward um, Islam or, or what have you. Now, he's pointing it toward Christianity. I think, but I, I think perhaps what Randy was getting at is that this argument hinges um, on, on the idea that there are only two choices. Mm -hmm. But I think what Randy is saying is that there aren't just two choices. But between believing in God and everything's okay and believing in nothing, well, there, there's I still think there's two choices, but uh, but there's there's nuances within that and sub choices within that. There's still an on-off switch with this. Okay, so we sat through something like this in the apologetics class, I took. Okay. And it's not answering every possibility with one question, but it's like what Cliff said, it's getting you to think. And normally with apologetics, you go a few steps further with stuff when you're arguing mm -hmm. that. So this is a good starting point for someone that's being believe there's a God, but you're not going to answer everything in totality. Right. And there's a danger because there. I remember in college people hearing this and going, oh, dude, I'm totally using that. No, 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 no. This is the, it's not like gin where you go, ah, pass out wager, now you have to become a Christian. It's like, no. But I did use some, a, a, a derivation of this one time when I was on a plane with uh, a philosophy prof who asked me what I did for a living, and I told him I taught logic, and I was, and I was a, a pastor, and he's like, how does that work? How can you be both? Because there's no way to be... Right. logical thought, and I don't think that Christians 
can't think just because they believe in something we can't see. Right, but an amazing number of Christians don't think about this kind of stuff. They well, just they, they just go with what they what they've been told in Sunday school, which is why. Yeah, but so do a lot of secular. Yeah. But they don't see it as, but a lot of them don't see it as that big a deal because A, they're not actually thinking about the fact that they're not thinking. You're expressing things about philosophy that you've never really thought about. They go, dude, I'm just getting a beer. That's all I'm doing. I'm not thinking about anything. You're talking about eternal souls and damnation and philosophical things. Really, how did you come to that conclusion? Pastor said something in Sunday school once. Yeah, okay. I'm just, just going to get that beer now. It's more, it, we put more of a spotlight on it. It's a bit like the Jamesian thing where he says, you know, once you start opening your mouth, people are going to start looking at you and judging you based on, on, on the fact that you open up your mouth and, and proclaim something. Anyway, it's also Pascal, for those of you that have heard this phrase before, it's also Pascal that said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. If you've ever heard anybody talking about this God-shaped hole in you, he's like, yeah, that's, what, that's Pascal. You're like, there's a God-shaped hole, and it's huge. And if you try to fill it with anything else, that stuff is just going to fall through. And you're going to feel just as empty. You can, you can put it on your infinite amount of stuff in this black hole. If it isn't God, it's all going to fall into the black hole, and you're still going to feel empty. And you're going to feel more empty because you tried your best to fill it with all sorts of other stuff, and you still feel empty inside. So he's like, no, no. The only thing that's going to fill that hole is God. That's Pascal. Again, not perfect, but these are thinkers. They're trying i got to move to another date. I can't just stay at 37 all the entire hour. 38. Marcus Ashiro takes a stand at Hara Castle. Obviously, this is in Japan. He's the son of, uh, uh, of a retainer of a Christian daimyo, a Christian uh, Japanese lord. And unfortunately, the, the Japanese lord was executed in 1600 when the Tokugawa shogunate is trying to excise all of Christianity from Japan. And so his dad uh, gets killed along with the with the, the daimyo. But there's also this persistent rumor, rumor that he's actually the illegitimate son of uh, of the shogun. Remember, we've seen this guy. Pardon me. Quite a hat Yes, yes. The Japanese love their hats. Um, although, do you remember some of the hats that we saw in Europe? I mean, there's like the whole wedding cakes. Yeah. But um, so we don't. You know, there's all sorts of rumors going around. Anyway. But there's a guy named, uh, a daimyo named Matsukura Shigemasa, that's the, the daimyo of Shimabara down here in the Nagasaki region. Remember, this is where we talked about, this is where most of the Kirishtanans are, are, are right now. Most of the Christians in Japan are down here in the south. And so this is where they keep getting crucified, where they keep having all sorts of problems. Um, and so he began construction on this huge castle, much bigger than he could afford. Not that people do that today, right? But it was roughly twice the size and twice the expense of what, at its, at its best, his, his whole uh, area could possibly afford. So, he starts heavily taxing his people. I mean, the people are starving. They have absolutely nothing, and he still demands more taxes. Because he wants he needs twice as much money than, than they could possibly give him to build this castle. So, thank Prince John, Nottingham, that sort of thing. That's exactly what you're thinking? Well, there you go. Because you're, you're applying history. Anyway, so, he also persecutes the Kirishtans at, a, at an intense level. He likes lighting them on fire at night. He likes boiling them alive in the nearby hot springs, making everybody watch. Stuff like that. So, nobody likes Matsukura and, and his whole clan. And his son, Matsukura Katsui, takes it even farther. Does even more stuff. 
is even more harsh, even more tyrannical. By 1637, everybody's like, oh, well, I'm done with this. I do not want this guy anymore. So they killed one of Matsukuro's tax collectors when he came around. At which point, Matsukuro backlashes, at which point sparks a full-scale rebellion, and it's led by 16-year-old Amaku Sashiro, this charismatic leader that's very dashing. He's like Zoro. He's like He's like Robin Hood. Everything that you can think of in terms of the dashing, sword-wielding, square-jawed, cool guy, that's Amaka Sashiro. Everybody talks about, everybody talked about how cool he was. The Kyrgyzstans thought, oh, this is our guy. But even the non-Christians were like, this is our guy. That's how cool he was. And even the non-Christians are like, Robin Hood, we like this guy. So, extremely successful against the Matsukura clan. People start calling him the fourth son of heaven, citing a prophecy which may or may not have ever been given. I love this. Nobody has any record of this prophecy prior to when it's being applied. There was a prophecy 100 years ago. Jesuit missionary St. Francis Xavier. Yeah, he said that this great warrior was going to come from God to save all the Kurdish fans. That's what Amaka Sashiro is. He's the fourth son of heaven. Rocking. This guy, this guy is awesome. You know, because uh, Francis Xavier glows. So he must be right, right? Okay. They even took over one of this, uh, 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 Matsukura's abandoned castles, Hara Castle. They refortified it. Depending on how you count it, 27 to 37,000 people joined his crusade, including a bunch of ronin, which are these masterless samurai. Because the samurai is like the classic Japanese ideal of bravery, loyalty, um, strength, competence, etc. And so there, there are some ronin that don't have a master, they're kind of looking for a cause. And, and you know, yeah, several of them come to his cause. 27 to 37,000 people, depending on how you count it. Huge thing. Most of those people, though, are made up of local townsfolk that have just said, we've had enough. We're, we're picking up pitchforks. Teach me how to use this sword. We're going to find out, and we're going to fight against the bad guys. Booyah. Christians rising up, non-Christians saying, we'll support you Christians. This is a cool moment in history. Unfortunately, it's a moment. Because they did so well that the Tokugawa shogunate goes, all right, we'll step in. Sends 125,000 troops to Hara Castle. Tells the Dutch to, to uh, be using their cannons from the coast and bomb the heck out of Hara Castle. Um, we're going to lay siege for several months until the, the people inside are just eating grass trying to survive. When Hara Castle fell, the shogun's forces slaughtered 37,000 people, including 13,000 absolute non-condacts, women, children, old people, Essentially emptying Nagasaki. They ended up having to bring in whole new chunks of people and resettle them in Nagasaki because there's nobody left in the entire region. Amako Sashiro was beheaded. His head was placed on a pole for everybody to see. And his last words were, Now those who are with me under siege in this castle will be my companions in the next world. I die, but I know exactly where I'm going. This officially marks the end of the Kurdistan movement. This is the last bastion of Christianity, and they just killed all of them. Now, there's still, uh, there's still an, an underground movement of Kirishtans. There's still just a small trickle. But this whole, we're going to try to stand up for Christ, there's going to be a bunch of us together, we're going to try to go on. next 250 years, there's no uprisings of any kind in Japan, any kind of, of, any kind of consequence. So you get to, like, the 1860s. They had clamped down well. Now, what's interesting is, even today, the Japanese don't know what to do with this guy. Because on some levels, he's like the perfect samurai, right? 
he's brave, he's loyal, he's really crazy confident, he's charismatic. You go, perfect samurai. But he's also a Christian, and we killed him. So what do you do with him? Right? So he finds himself in anime and manga and computer games all over the place. For instance, in the manga Amaka Sashiro 1637, a very effeminate Amaka Sashiro is captured and continually sexually abused by a time traveler who repeatedly humiliates him by treating him like a woman. Constant humiliation. Dresses him like a woman, addresses him like a addresses him like a woman. Nasty. Video game uh, called Imagine. He's a demon that you can summon. In a video game called Samurai Showdown, he makes a deal with the devil to survive the massacre and becomes this sorcerer, this evil, dark sorcerer that you have to defeat. Which is the same thing he did in a very popular movie over there called Samurai Reincarnation, where he's this horrible sorcerer trying to lure our hero into the dark religion of Christianity. Come with us to the world of the devils. That's a mockery shoe. Do they call it Christianity now? Because hmm? he's—I mean, this is crazy world. This is evil. He's given himself over to these dark powers that he was trying. It's a very weird mishmash. When you're talking about secular Japanese understanding of Christianity, it's a very freaky mishmash. Of course, you can't just pick on the Japanese. Germans did weird things with Christianity. Yeah, yeah, Jesus and trees. No, not Jesus, and trees. The the uh, the slaves in, in Jamaica said, yes, yes, Christianity. And, you know, our, our African gods, we'll call them Loas, we'll make it Santeria. You know, it's, it's, it's Catholicism, but with gods. But we'll call them saints. Yeah. On a positive note, they named a plum tree after them. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious as to why they would do that, but it's interesting. Um... Well, the point I was getting at is that they don't know what to do with him. They just can't seem to let him go. I mean, he's a massively um, significant character in Japanese culture even today. But they just can't stand him. But they talk about him a lot. It's just really interesting. Can't let him go. All right, 1642. First English Civil War breaks out, because we're now we're back into Europe. Um, you remember King James? Crazy powerful King James, right? Because he's got... England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, all together. They're not officially just one kingdom, but they are a united kingdom of, of four kingdoms that are working together. His son, Charles I... What? You know. Why? Why? Why, why, is, why just do this? Why, why just do this? Yeah. Yeah, still screwed in. Everything's fine. Oh, I love it. Okay, anyway, um, I'm not sure why it's doing this. But, um, okay, well, his son, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. His son is uh, Charles I, and Charles I says, uh, I want to be like Dad. I want to have absolute power. Come on, find my PC. Nope. Alright, I have no idea why. Oh, sorry, sweetie. I get this at night. Anyway, um, so he wants, to, he wants to be an absolute monarch like France has. France is trying to build absolute monarchs. And so, uh, like James, both James and Charles, both at one point or another, referred to kings as little gods on earth. 
That's, that's what kings are. They get to do whatever they want to do. So Charles um, tries to, to build up a, a, what he, what's referred to as high Anglicanism in the Church of England. Um, so you, you build beautiful altars, you get rid of those simple uh, uh, communion tables, and you build an altar there made of stone or made of marble, you know, really fancy, nice stuff. Um, we're going to reinstate genuflection, the, 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 the kneeling, uh, reinstate crossing yourself and making the sign of the cross as mandatory in services. We're going to reinstate reading the Apocrypha in services. And we're also going to, to get back to a more semi-Arminian Catholic theology. The idea that you have to work for your salvation, that you, you can lose it relatively easily, and you've got to be able to constantly go to Mass to be able to keep up your salvation and things. Now, you're the Puritans. What do you, what do you, um, what do you feel about that? That, that Charles I is saying, okay, we're going to fix the Church of England. You're a Puritan whose whole job is to try to fix the Church of England in the opposite directions. How do you feel about this? You're totally doing it all wrong. Crazy doing it all wrong. So, um, a lot of Reformed Puritans start speaking out against it and the Catholicizing of the Church of England. Yeah, 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 turn yourself off. But, uh, but Charles hasn't allowed a parliament in over a decade. Parliaments are supposed to be called, and, and every year you call a new parliament or you call it when you need it. He hasn't called a parliament in over a decade. And anybody who does any kind of public dissension, he has their ears chopped off. So, you don't get to do this anymore. Well, um, now I just have to speculate. I don't know. I don't know. I have speculation as to why, but I don't know. Um, you, it's not a good thing, though. Um, so, being Scotland, rebellion breaks out in Scotland. The Scottish go, that's it. We're fighting back. We're the people of John Knox, man. We're, we, ain't, we ain't standing for this for nothing. Um, and so Charles raises taxes to try to fight the Scottish. But it's hard to raise taxes if you don't have a parliament, right? So he tries, but he's like, I'm spending, I'm spinning all my wheels. All I'm doing is torquing off the English, because I'm raising taxes without any kind of representation. They don't like that. And you're raising taxes to fight people who are saying we don't like the law that you're doing. Yep. Right now. Yep. And so if I don't support the law, I don't want to give you money to go help oppress other people. Actually, an amazing number of people don't really mind that. Yeah, they're like, fine, fine, go fight them. They're all, all the way over there in Scotland. Anyway, so he's forced to build. To, to call a parliament, and they, they end up re referring to this later as the Long Parliament because it ends up sticking around for all intents and purposes for 20 years. It, it, it doesn't unconvene itself for 20 years. But the Long Parliament says, actually, King, we think you're wrong. We're mostly Puritans, and, and even those of us that aren't Puritans, we think what you're doing is kind of against the law. You don't get to do some of the stuff that you're doing. Um, so in 1642, the king takes 400 soldiers, goes to Parliament to arrest five guys. It's like, you five in particular are guilty of treason. You need 600 guys. Five, or 400. 400. Well, he's trying to be on top of it. What's interesting is that the Speaker of the Parliament, a guy named William Lenthal, refused to give him up. He's just like, no, I serve Parliament, not the king. That's kind of huge. That's kind of a big deal, because now we've got this civil war that starts between the parliamentarians and the royalists. Um, and and it, it increasingly, as time goes on, if you, if you look at a map, as time goes on, you see that all around England, everybody starts coming to the parliamentarian side, because they're like, the king is just being a thug, and, and we're disagreeing. Now, what's interesting, I wish you could see this. Um, 
The parliamentarians are, are, were derisively called roundheads, if you've ever heard the term roundheads, um, by the royalists. And when I was younger, I always used to think that that was because they had these very distinctive round helmets. They look almost like, uh, if you can't see it, they almost look like metal baseball caps with a, with a back to it. Um, and, and so I always thought, oh, that's why they were called roundheads. No. Found out a couple years ago, that's not why they were called roundheads. And this is part of why I speculate about why it was the ears. They're called roundheads actually because most of, of, the, um, of the Puritans wore their hair short. Um, and and, and at where the, the, the royalists had these big old crazy fluffy wigs. But, but the parliamentarians had these short haircuts because they're like, I, I don't want to do all this ostentation things. So you can actually see their ears. Um, and, and so to, to call them roundheads is to deride them for not being as foofy as, as you are. Now, if, if the reason you're not foofy is because you have nothing but disdain for people that have foofy wigs, how do you feel about being made fun of for not being as foofy as us? Well, well okay. So, yeah, some actually take it as... They do. They, do. they start referring to themselves as roundheads eventually. But how else? If you say, I refuse to be a, a fop like you, and they go, well, you're not even remotely as stylish as I am. Well, he's not even wearing a wig. <laughs> he doesn't even have powder on his face. Does that make me like you all the more? Does that make me go, you guys are so weird. <laughs> it's the idea of saying, I disdain fads, and then have somebody go, but you're not even faddish, makes you go, yeah. And that's why. That you're everything I don't want to be. So one of the Puritans that immediately rallied to the parliamentary side was uh, a landowner in Cambridge named Oliver Cromwell, who rose to distinction very quickly. He taught himself how to be a cavalryman. He had no military background at all, but taught himself how to be a cavalryman, very quickly rose to the, the rank of lieutenant general of horse. So I mean, he's, he's really good at what he does. And in fact, he was instrumental in building what they refer to as the New Model Army, uh, an army that's based on a new model. Instead of every county sending forth their people and saying, here, you can have a clump of my people, he's like, what we need is a standing national army. Do you remember this is what Charles Martel argued for, you know, years and years and years before, saying, but you know, we re if we're going to stand against the Moors, what we need is a national force that is always ready and that we can, we can have standardized um, equipment, standardized training for. Cromwell was instrumental in creating that for England, so that you got this standing model army. The very next year, Louis the Fourteenth becomes king of France, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But while war is breaking out in England, over a uh, civil war over the rights of kings, France is, is is putting in their most absolute, the most absolute monarch ever, basically in Europe. That's right. He becomes king when he's five years old. Uh, so that means that he's actually technically under the regency of his mother, Queen Anne of Austria, who's a Habsburg, who's Spanish, so she's blonde. That's that's his mom. And her lover, Cardinal Mazarin, who's the, uh, what, you make a, do you, are you familiar with Mazarin? No. Okay. So Cardinal Mazarin, who's the successor of Cardinal Richelieu, Cardinal Mazarin is, is, the, is the queen's lover, and they are ba both basically running the government. They put down their own rebellion there in France, and Louis XIV ends up reigning for 72 years. 72 years of absolute of an absolute monarch. This is a guy that, yes, likens himself, as you can clearly see in this photograph, to the Sun King. 
the god Apollo. He's like, I like to think of myself as Apollo on Earth. Everybody dress Roman today. Bunkers king in, in that respect. Um, so we'll be seeing more of him in the next couple of decades because he's around for a good long time. But I want to I want to finish off here. The long parliament enforces enforces theology. They, they're going to change how we do theology. And I want to end with this idea of saying, in, in 1644 you have... Uh, you have a group of people saying, if we can just control the law, we can control the church. Now, state isn't going, it's not a state church, because we're Puritans, and we want you to have your own personal relationship with God. But what we will do is control what this, the, the church does so that we know that your relationship with God is, is a healthy one. But it's not like we're controlling the church. It's not like we're, it's a state church, because it's a very individual church. We just make sure that the church only does it right. Because that'll work, right? How would you synopsize what we've talked about today? Looking at Descartes, looking at Pascal, looking at Amaka Sushiro, looking at um, the, the English Civil War. How would you summarize this? I think it's a workplace of revolution. <laughs> it really is. We're this is the beginning of, and things have not, have not gone back as far as, when you look at uh, theology. It, it's something's out of the box, and it, you can never put it back in. There, every once in a while, there's a glass that you just can't unbreak. You know, or or, or we'll say it in a positive way. Sometimes you you you, you let something out, and it, and it grows, and, and, and it's stronger, and it breathes free. Okay. And, and yes, if, if this is the birthplace of it, the the Enlightenment is the incubator of revolution. It's something personal. It is. People are starting to say not just like the the Celts or the. Anabaptists or um, John Calvin, they're, they're not just saying you need to have a personal relationship with the Lord, but now we've got philosophers saying, well, even philosophy should still be personal. You, you need to think philosophically. You shopkeeper, you individual on the street. Yes, it's very personal. Amakusa Sushiro is, is leading a very personal crusade. Um, absolutely. What else? Anything else? Uh, going to require some thought, whereas this isn't uh, something that you can uh, treat lightly. You have to be willing to, to learn. Yep. You have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to get stretched by it. It's going to change you. It's going to, to, to force your active involvement. Okay. Well, let's close and, and, and think about, as we're looking at things today, um, again, our, our what can we what can we as Christians apply from Descartes? What can we look at and say, well, I don't want to just assume. And I don't just want to trust trust what I see in front of me. I actually want to try to make sure I understand this. I thought this through. What can you learn from Pascal that says, Well, yes, but you need to wrap that around things that you do perceive, things that you do understand from your senses, and probabilities, filling in the gaps of what you don't know. What from what you do know about God, what else can you infer about God? Um, what do you learn from uh, for the Kirishitan movement? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? You, you, are, are you really going to be able to stand against the shogunate, take a castle, and think you're going to carve out your own Christian kingdom in the south of Japan? Probably not. And yet, even at the end of it, to be able to stand with your head up high and say, 
say, no, I know where I'm going. I, I'm not scared of dying. And that be such, such a, a witness that even people that can't stand you today, that don't know what to do with your theology, still can't forget what you've done. So the Alamo of his heart is on his face. And what you see going on with Cromwell and the, and the English Civil War rebuild, both with what Charles was doing and what the parliamentarians were doing, at what point can you, at what point is telling everybody else what they absolutely have to believe and not going to work in the long run? What's right? Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to look at, at what's come before, but I also thank you for how that informs where we're at right now. Help us, Lord, when we look at our lives, when we look at our church, when we look at our government, when we look at the church worldwide. Help us to stop and think about what's come before and what we can learn from, what we can apply, what we can learn from, and how not to do it. But help us to honor you in all of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys very much. <laughs>